0: When I am gone and August comes to my desert, rain will soak sand, its rich scent rising to enter the lungs of another mother or walker, someone whose intention and desire I cannot know. When I am gone, this painting of little islands, miniature trees and birds, floating in a magical sea of blue will hang in someone else's house. Will that person tell the story of poor Nicaraguan peasants made rich by art and revolution? A granddaughter may inherit my turquoise earrings, the clay pans I've used for years, their pungency filling the house will offer up a new generation of bread. Someone not yet born may read this poem. But who will ask the questions born of the answers I juggle today? Who will know the heat of this great love or catch fragments of my memory reassembling just before dawn?
1: Welcome to The Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. Matt Bernico. And you just heard a poem called Made Rich by Art and Revolution by Margaret Randall, who is our guest for today. She's a really legendary poet, activist, and a lot of other things that you'll probably learn (laughs) in the next uh, hour or so. The poem that she just read reflects on a painting by Nicaraguan artist Yelba Labali. And we'll share the painting around on our social media so people can see it. It's really very cool. In addition to plenty of poems, she's written a ton of books, including Christians in the Nicaraguan Revolution, which we have talked about on the show before. It's a series of interviews that she did with Christian Sandinistas, and you can check that out for sure. And also more recently, Exporting Revolution, a great book about Cuba. And that's just to name uh, a few very cool things that listeners of this podcast should check out. She spent her life in revolutionary moments from Mexico in 1968 to Cuba's most uh, prosperous period, you might say, to working in the Sandinista government. And she even knew Ernesto Cardenal before he was a priest.
2: Yeah, pretty cool. Um, such an amazing life. And uh, she's got so many great stories and uh, definitely worth your time to listen to the, the interview. Uh, well, in the interview, we get to hear more about her relationship with liberation theology, her life in Cuba and her experience making socialist media in Nicaragua which uh, she downplays a little bit, but um, I'm still so fascinated. in. <laughs> I want to I be the, the socialist media maker for somebody. Uh, it be wild. It's a really great interview, and it's full of some really good stories and some um, just really great recollections from Margaret, as well as some uh, good ideas to kind of move forward with, too, I think. Uh, you can find more of Margaret Randall's work at margaretrandall.org. Uh, which we'll link in the show notes and uh, you should go check it out because she's written uh, a lot of great stuff and she has a lot more stuff on the way. So uh, yeah, keep an eye on that website. All right, let's take it over to Margaret.
1: Thank you, Margaret, so much for coming on the podcast. We're really, really grateful to have you. I feel like we've been sort of thinking with you in some ways for a long time now, and it's nice to be able to hear from you directly and get some of your thoughts. Uh, Whenever we have someone new on the podcast, we ask them to introduce themselves a little bit, tell us about their work. So, Margaret, could you introduce yourself uh, for our
0: listeners? Sure. I'd be glad to. I'm really happy to be here. Um, Hello to both of you, Matt and Dean. Um, I'll give you just a little bit of background before we start. I'm a U.S. American poet and writer. I was born in New York City in 1936, so I'm 84. Uh, as a young woman, I traveled to Mexico where I lived for eight years, and there I founded and throughout the 60s published a bilingual literary quarterly called El Cuerno Plumado or The Plumed Horn. More than 700 writers and artists from 35 countries appeared in its pages. In 1968, I, like many others, took part in the Mexican student movement. And the Mexican government repression led to my having to leave Mexico underground and travel to Cuba where I lived for the next 11 years. By this time I had four children. I'd known Ernesto Cardinal since the early 1960s when he and I both frequented U.S. beat poet, Philip Lamentilla's apartment in Mexico City. This was before Ernesto entered the seminary in Colombia or took his vows as a priest. Cardinal published some of his early poems in El Corno. We continued to see one another after I went to Cuba in 1969. And in 1970, we were both judges for the poetry category of the Casa de las Americas literary contest in Havana. We always got together when he visited the island. Throughout the 70s, I also got to know some of the other Nicaraguans who were struggling to oust the um, Somoza dictatorship. Uh, Carlos Fonseca, Jaime Wheelock, Jose Benito Escobar, Doris Tijerino, Jaconda Belli, Jacinto Suarez, the Ortega brothers and others. They had come to Cuba for medical attention or other reasons. And so uh, we got to know one another. And then when the Sandinistas took power in the summer of 1979, I visited Nicaragua for the first time. It was Ernesto who, by that time was Nicaragua's first minister of culture, who invited me there to do research and write about the country's women. Then I moved to Nicaragua uh, at the end of 1980. So I shared those first years of the Sandinista experiment. They were years that looking back were exuberant, transparent and full of hope. I came to love the country, its landscapes and diverse cultures. I was attracted to what the Sandinistas were doing for several reasons. As a feminist, I was impressed by the feminist consciousness at least on the part of the women who held positions of power at the beginning. As a poet, I loved it that Nicaragua was a nation of poets where poetry was popular and valued among all classes of people. We used to have readings and I can remember that sometimes there were 5,000 people at a reading, a poetry reading. I was also interested in the fact that liberation theology, Catholicism seemed to be influencing public policy, because that certain ha- certainly had not been true in Cuba. Um, for example, the death penalty was outlawed from the new government's first days in office, and I, I ascribe that to, um, to the Christian um, input into the revolution. I myself, I'm not religious. I wasn't then, and I'm not now but I was deeply moved by a revolution that made humanism an important part of social change. During my years in Nicaragua, I was accompanied by my two youngest daughters. Uh, my oldest, my son and my oldest daughter stayed in Cuba. Uh, Anna, who was the youngest traveled with me there because she was 10 and of course I didn't give her an option. And Jimena joined us when she finished high school in Cuba at the age of 16. So I was in touch with what the revolution meant for young people. I worked at the Ministry of Culture for a year, and then for the agency that was attempting to change mass media, radio, television, and print media, who wanted to apply revolutionary concepts to everything from how we delivered the news to soap operas and musical programs. So I learned a lot then. Before I went to Nicaragua, I published Inside the Nicaraguan Revolution, the, do- the story of Doris Tijerino and Sandino's Daughters, which were my first two books of oral history with Nicaraguan women. While there, I wrote Risking a Somersault in the Air, conversations with Nicaraguan writers, many of whom were in the Sandinista leadership, and Christians in the Nicaraguan Revolution, a book about Cardinal's community at Solentinami and a Christian-based community at a Managua parish called Riguero. After returning to the States at the end of the 1980s, I published Sandino's Daughters Revisited, which was a kind of a sequel to Sandino's Daughters. Doing the fieldwork for these books, I was able to travel the length and breadth of Nicaragua. I list my Nicaraguan book titles as a way of saying, I dug deep into life there. After I left the country, I visited on several occasions. As much as any other outsider, I am devastated today by the betrayal of the Sandinista movement and the dictatorial turn to the right that those who call themselves Sandinistas have taken in recent years, especially since the April 18th, 2018 assault on peaceful political demonstrations. The Ortega-Murillo government has murdered, tortured, imprisoned, and exiled hundreds of dissenters. It's particularly disturbing to me that there are those who continue to support Daniel Ortega after his stepdaughter's 1998 declaration that he sexually abused her for 19 years from the age of 11 to almost 30. Her mother, Rosario Murillo, who of course is the country's vice president, ignored the allegations, abandoning her daughter and protecting her husband Many in the solidarity movement here in the U.S. separate what a man does in his personal life from his position as a public servant. I don't feel the personal and public can be separated. When I returned to the land of my birth in 1984, I was ordered deported by the Reagan administration on the grounds that, quote, my writing went beyond the good order and happiness of the United States, that's a direct quote. In the late 1960s, I inadvertently lost my U.S. citizenship by taking out Mexican citizenship. I was married to a Mexican at the time and adopted his nationality in order to have an easier time getting work. I fought the deportation order and finally won my case in 1989. So I live in Albuquerque now with my wife of 34 years, the painter Barbara Byers. That's... Uh, a brief preamble to our conversation. So I welcome your questions.
2: Yeah, Margaret, thank you so much for sharing your life story with us like that. I think that's uh, fascinating. Uh, You live such a cool life. I I love it. I love hearing about it. Um, I think I first came to know your work uh, from your 1983 book, Christians in the Nicaraguan Revolution, And uh, I mean, you have a very clear and uh, interesting history with the Sandinistas. So I wonder if you could start there and uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about that book and your involvement in Nicaragua more specifically.
0: Yeah, well, it was very, um, it was interesting because, of course, Cuba, I had lived in Cuba for 11 years. Cuba um, is, at least at that time, was absolutely anti-religion. I mean, you couldn't even be a believer and be a member of the Cuban Communist Party. and so, my children were raised uh, with a materialist um, education and so forth. And you know, I never thought about it too much one way or the other. As I said before, I'm not religious. and uh, but then when i when I moved to Nicaragua with my ten year old, um, and she, of course, was eager to make new friends and so forth, um, we she was invited to a sixteenth birthday party and the birthday party by, by a little girl, a girl her age who she knew and the birthday party included a mass and she was terrified. She was very, she was scared of the mass. And it was then that I realized that the Cuban, um, that what Cuban education said about religion was really sort of uh, over the top. You know, that um, there was really no reason for my daughter to be so afraid. and. Um, and i began to I, I kind of came to nicaragua perhaps with the idea that you couldn't be religious and at the same time revolutionary and i quickly found out that that was not the case because um you know many many people i i might even say the majority of uh nicaraguan revolutionaries at that time um were religious were catholics uh or Um, even more had come up through the Christian youth movement, the Catholic youth movement. So that movement had sort of fed um, many, many young people into the revolutionary movement. And that sparked my my curiosity about about, uh, why these two philosophies, how they could coexist and how they could give to one another and why they really needn't be um, um, mutually exclusive. Um, and of course I had Ernesto there too, um, you know, as a friend and other people who I could talk to about such things. And as I, I said, in my brief introduction, I, I also noticed that there was a humanism um, in that early Sandinista movement that really did not exist in Cuba. As you know, in Cuba, there were um, there were executions right after the revolution. I've never believed in capital punishment. And um, so there were ways in which um, the, the Christianity of the Sandinista movement really sort of intrigued me. And when I'm intrigued by something, one of the things I usually do is try to write a book about it because I find that the um, research that I have to do answers a lot of my questions and um, enables me to explore whatever it is I'm interested in. And then that's what happened with Christians in the Nicaraguan Revolution, I decided I would write uh, an oral history uh, divided into two parts. Uh, One would be uh, a base community in the the countryside, which of course um, ended up being Solentinami. And that was obvious because it was such an interesting experiment. I remember I had gotten very angry at at, um, Ernesto back in in, in Mexico uh, when he first went to Solentinami because no women were allowed and I wanted to visit and lots of uh, male poets I knew were visiting, but uh, we women were not allowed there. But by the time, um, you know, the revolution was, was a victorious, they had grown, I had grown. And uh, so Ernesto kindly um, went with me to Solentinami and set me up and introduced me to the key characters. And I did a lot of interviewing and research. And then, um, I wanted part of the book to be one of the base communities in Managua in a working class neighborhood, and that turned out to be Riguero with Uriel Molina, who was the priest um, there, and uh, also had a very interesting take on revolution and and uh, and religion. And um, so, you know, that was a that was a learning process for me. I uh, also must say that um, very often when I write a book, when I finish it, then that's done, I go on to the next project. But in the case of Christians in the Nicaraguan Revolution, I uh, went to mass almost every Sunday until I left Nicaragua because I really liked, um, it wasn't the religion again that attracted me, but it was the discussions that they would have after mass where um, it was very clear to me that um, Things were being discussed. Important things were being discussed that were just not being discussed within the party apparatus or the purely political apparatus. Um, it seemed to me that the um, liberation theology framework was much more open, was much more um, inviting of different um, of different expressions of different opinions. Uh, the, of course, the the party. Um, was getting to be more and more dogmatic, which is what, what happens to uh, political parties and also to religion, sadly, you know, if, if we don't watch out.
1: And it's uh, there's a hundred things that I was thinking as you were speaking that I wanna know more about. So I'm sure that we'll find a way to get to so many of them, uh, but I'm so, so uh, intrigued and and grateful too, that you had an intrigue intriguing relationship, at least to Christianity in that revolution. Um, It is such a really special book. Uh, I think you do a great job pulling out a lot of threads from the people that you interview. I want to get to your friendship with Cardinal in a moment, but maybe we could start off talking a little bit about Salentaname. The book is so moving to read, and it records these great uh, conversations with people in that community. What was that community like? Can you tell us a little bit more about it, at least when you were there uh, talking with those folks? How did that community strike you?
0: Well, of course, when, by the time I got there, which was about, I want to say, the end of 81 or maybe sometime in early 82, um, the community had changed a great deal. Uh, so I think it's important to remember that the community, when Ernesto went there originally, was absolutely impoverished. I mean, it wasn't even uh, a group of peasants who had any kind of artistic um uh, manifestation where you often find um you know indigenous people or people living in the countryside doing things, making pottery, making baskets, making painting, playing music. None of that. I mean they were completely subsistence. They um hardly they were almost unable to raise the food to keep themselves alive. So it's important to remember that they had absolutely nothing until Ernesto came. And Ernesto, of course, brought um, the discussions uh, of the uh gospel uh related to their lives, which was very important because they were of course believers um, and um but he also brought um ways for them to make a living uh plants for them to to uh, to grow um, paints for them to paint with canvases uh, uh, he, he, they taught them to read and write they taught uh, music, they taught art. Uh, So, you know, he was awakening these people um, on every level, uh, economically, uh, emotionally, uh, psychologically, artistically. And um, that awareness that Ernesto always had, that that was really important, that those things go hand in hand, that, um, you know, and I think that was unique to him maybe as a poet, or maybe just as a as a person, as a human being. Uh, But, you know, one can think of Solentinami, and I think back, and I think it could have been very different, you know, somebody could have come with a very paternalistic attitude, you know, or even an exploitative attitude. And of course, that wasn't the case at all. So um, I remember that by the time I got to Nicaragua, um, a lot of that had changed, there was a, a sense not of prosperity, but of well-being in the community. By the time I got to Solentanami, there were there was a beautiful little church. Um, there was um, there were other buildings, a few buildings, simple but but you know well-made. And uh, there were crops. Uh, people were painting. People were reading. Uh, people were interested in government in a, in a very healthy way. You know what can uh, the collectivity do for for us? What can we do for the collectivity? So um, and some of the old folks, some of the original uh people, I, I talk about this in the book, were there still, and you know, they were the ones who sort of took me in hand and um caught me up when I started screaming because I took a shower and there was a, a spider that must have been about eight inches across <laughs> taking a shower with me. Um so so it was wonderful. And then I remember, of course, once we were back in Managua, um you know, Ernesto made contacts for these wonderful painters. I mean, he really, he discovered this, this primitive school of painting. I don't even like to use the word primitive, but this indigenous school of painting at at Solantinami, but not to exploit it, to connect it with the rest of the world. And so he was finding um, a market for these paintings in Germany and in France and in the United States. And I remember he never took a commission Uh, When he, you know, linked these painters to these outlets, um, they always got the full uh, the full uh, price for their paintings. And so it it was just wonderful. You know, it was one of these communities that you just wish there were more of all over the world.
2: I love hearing so much about Sultaname. I mean, I think Dean and I have we've we've read Gospel in Solentaname. We've read some of your work as well. And uh, it seems like such an incredible place, and uh, it's fantastic to hear more about it. Well, uh, let's let's turn a little bit here, and maybe we can talk about Ernesto Cardinal specifically. I think um, something that Dean and I like to say is that he's sort of the patron saint, I think, of our podcast, or at least of our way of thinking. He's uh, become a really important figure for uh, the way we've been thinking about politics and, uh, and Christianity in the last few years. So um, you had a very close relationship with him, and uh, that's really fascinating. So I don't know. What was he like? <laughs> what was your relationship like? Tell us Tell us about Ernesto Cardinal.
0: You know, he was, he. there's so much that can be said about him. I almost don't know where to start. Um, I knew him, of course, before he became a priest. Um, we met um, at Philip apartment in Mexico City. He was very, very um, supportive of our magazine, El Cordon Plumado. Uh, not only did we publish um, him, I think, for the first time in, in English in that, in that magazine, and many, many times in Spanish. But um, he wrote letters. We had this letter section at the end of the magazine. You can see the magazine, by the way, free facsimiles online, uh, Northwestern University. I can send you that link. And um, so you can read the letters that he wrote to the magazine that we published. And um, so that was, you know, once we, I remember what I remember from Mexico one time, Roberto Fernandez-Retamar, who was a very important Cuban poet, and at that time, the um, editor of the Cuban magazine, um, Casa de los Americas, was visiting us in in Mexico. And Ernesto was there at the same time. And um, he wanted to say a mass for El Corno and for the Cuban Revolution. And so he did this in a little chapel in a big Mexico City hospital. I can't remember which one. But I guess the nuns there were friends of his and they lent him this chapel and he said this mass. And I I couldn't help um, being sort of amazed that a Catholic priest from Nicaragua would say a mass for the Cuban Communist Party and El Cordon Plumado. But that was the kind of person that, that Ernesto was. He was also very um, principled, extremely principled. I mean, you know, his whole, um, uh, The trouble that he had later with the Vatican, when I was standing twenty feet from him, I guess when uh, the Pope did that—you know—shook his finger in his face, and and uh, when Ernesto had knelt down to try to kiss his ring, and and the Pope said, "You you got to make it it right with the Church." Well, he wasn't going to make it right with the Church, but he didn't. His intention wasn't to make it wrong with the Church. He was he was solid in his beliefs uh but he was also um he couldn't be um threatened you know like that i mean he he didn't bow to a kind of to what he considered a false authority and of course as everyone knows as you know they uh they forbid him the, the church forbid him from saying mass or christening or doing any of the other sacraments um almost until the end of his life. At the very end of his life, about a year before he died, he was visited, he was in the hospital uh, with a kidney problem and he was visited by the nuncio in in Managua with a message from Pope uh, Francis restoring his rights uh, as, as a priest. And of course it was too late. I mean, you know, he wasn't going to be saying mass at that point in his life, but I think it was a wonderful gesture and I think it was something that probably meant a lot to him. Um, and nevertheless, you know, he and his brother, I should say, um, his brother was also extraordinary, uh, also a very good friend of mine. We lived about three blocks apart in Managua and, uh, his brother was a Jesuit and I used to, his, and he lived in this house with other Jesuits and I used to go there on Friday nights. Uh, a bunch of us would go for dinner and, and to talk and, um, you may know that he, he was, um, Nicaragua's first uh, minister of education, and he was the one who designed the wonderful um, literacy crusade. So, um, the two brothers were um, were both extraordinary human beings.
1: It's so interesting to hear this constellation of uh, people and moments, and uh, your relationship to all these different things that I think Matt and I have read about, but uh, obviously have you know not had such a close uh, two degrees of separation, maybe. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that that moment when John Paul II does the, the famous finger wag that you had mentioned. I mean, it's such an iconic photo. I think it really summarizes a lot of the struggles of liberation theology generally. And, you know, it's the subject of all kinds of conversation, just that one photo that was taken of that, that moment. Uh, Could you say a little bit more about that? I mean, what was the mood in that sort of space? If you can remember, what sort of the atmosphere, what do you remember Ernesto maybe feeling or talking about afterwards?
0: Well, you know, it was, um, I'm trying to think, what year was that? Was that 82
1: or? I'm not sure, somewhere around that, yeah.
0: Yeah, I I, I want to say that I was no longer working at the Ministry of Culture because I only worked there for the first year um then i moved on to this uh, uh party apparatus that dealt with the media um the the mood on the on the tarmac was you know the mood the protocol mood, mood when a dignitary comes you know there's everything there's a certain protocol that people follow and um we were all i remember we were all lined up um to receive him um and of course i wasn't one of the high level people who would have, you know, shook his hand or anything like that. But I just happened to be quite close to, to Ernesto. So I I saw this whole kind of really uh, painful uh, scene because I remember Ernesto's face being absolutely, um, you know, sort of uh, devotional as, as the Pope approached him and he, you know, knelt down and I'm sure that he was feeling um his religious fervor and doing what he would do for the pontiff t- t- being that he was a priest and um and then i remember seeing his his expression change because the pope instead of putting his hand out to have his ring kissed he, he just wagged his finger you know in in Ernesto's face in a very rude um Way and 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 it was just unnecessary. I mean, he even even coming from where he was coming from, if he had had a little bit more grace about him, he might have approached this with Ernesto in private. But he decided to shame him in public, and it was very telling. I mean, of course, what I'm saying now is is with the with the foresight of afterthought, you know, in retrospect, right? Because one thinks about these things at the time it just all happened so fast. And it was kind of, we were those of us, I think those close to my, to me and, and certainly myself, we were just shocked. You know, we would, were shocked that somebody like the Pope would be that rude uh, to someone who was obviously trying to, uh, to show him reverence, you know, and deference. And, um, and then I remember seeing the, 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 um, expression on Ernesto's face changed. And it was also very subtle and very sudden, but it changed from sort of devotion to sort of um, surprise and shock, and then to a sort of inner security. I mean, he didn't break down. He didn't, um, you know, withdraw his hand or say, I'm sorry, or I will, or anything like that. He just maintained the dignity that was quite remarkable under the circumstances. Uh, I realize that this is the first time I'm I'm talking about this and I hope I'm remembering right, but I think that that's, that sort of sums it up.
2: Yeah, you know, I think it does. I've seen that picture, I don't know, countless times, <laughs> I've come across it quite often. And in the photo, uh, to me, Cardinal always looks very defiant, looking like uh, you know maybe he expects this or whatever. But the way you tell the story here, it paints a paints a fuller picture that I really appreciate. It's uh, it's a great to hear this other side of things.
0: I don't think he he expected it. You know, I think you're right. He was defiant and justifiably so, but I don't think he could have expected that. You know, I don't think that. I mean, revolutionary as Ernesto was, he was also a priest, and he must have had in some part of himself at least. Um, a feeling of great respect for, for the Pope, you know, so I don't really believe that he could have anticipated that the Pope would, he might have anticipated that the Pope would, would take him to task privately. But I doubt that he really expected that publicly and I think he rose to the occasion perfectly.
1: Yeah, well, this is an aspect that comes out even in your book when you speak with uh, Ernesto, where you at, you uh, you talk a little bit about, you know, people suggest perhaps there's kind of something of a schism going on in Nicaragua, which, of course, that was the Pope's fear, uh, and perhaps not totally unfounded either. I always think of uh, the big mass, he said, in Managua, where the people really uh, rebelled against uh, John Paul II. Um, it sort of turns into a big protest, <laughs> not what, you, what he expected either, I would guess. Um, but he was very insistent that they weren't creating a schism where he didn't want to anyway, you know, he had always felt, uh, this should be the the path the church is taking. Um, and I think you do a great job drawing that out too, that sort of unique blend of, of theology happening in the movement. Um, we could talk more about that in a moment too, but I do want to hear more about your own work in the ministry of culture and in the Sandinista government in general. Could you tell us a little bit about what you got up to while you were in Nicaragua?
0: Well, my work at the Ministry of Culture wasn't that interesting to tell you the truth. Um, Ernesto kind of rec- uh, kind of rescued me. I, I, when I went to Nicaragua at the end of 79 to do the research for Sandina's daughters, um, I got very close to the women who, who were um, heading the uh, women's movement in Nicaragua, the uh, women's organization, and they promised me a job if I came back to live there. So, my intention when I went back was to work for uh, the women's organization. But in the time that I was back in Cuba writing the book, before returning to Nicaragua, um, the, of course, the, the Sandinistas were suffering all kinds of, uh, of uh, attacks from the United States and so forth. And uh, money was getting low, and all of the uh, mass organizations. Could no longer hire people for salaries. They had to depend on voluntary work. So when I got back, I realized that here I was with my daughter, ten years old, and I didn't have a job uh, and no way of supporting her. And so Ernesto really sort of rescued me by putting me to work at the at the um, at the ministry. Uh, and what he found for me to do was to work in international relations. And so I attended to. Um, people who came from other countries, Joan Weiss, uh, Mercedes Sosa, Gunter Grass, you know, anybody who came to visit, um, who was invited by the Ministry of Culture, I took them around and made sure that they were comfortable and so forth and so on. So it was a job that um, put me in touch with very, with many interesting people, uh, but it was, it was rather a routine job and it was um, sort of, uh, a protocol job and, uh, not that interesting really. Uh, so about a year later, although I was very grateful for, uh, to Ernesto for having, uh, you know, rescued us from that, from that situation. So about a year later, I went to work, um, for, uh, something called the PEP, which was the, um, agency of the Sandinista party that dealt with mass media. And there I worked under Jaconda Belli and, um, that job was extremely interesting to me because we learned, uh, or I learned, uh, I guess we all learned, uh, to, you know, how you change media. You can't just say, "Okay, we have a revolution now; everybody's going to have different values in these sitcoms and the way the news is delivered and so forth." You can't impose that. You know, you have to uh, get people to understand, and by people, I mean the writers and the directors and the reporters and so forth and so on, news anchors, you have to get them to want to change their values and figure out how to do that. So it was a, a kind of job where we were all learning together. And, and that was extremely exciting uh, to me. Um, and so then I worked there for the rest of the time and and the, the, the following three years before coming back to the States. I also worked for a time, not full-time, but part-time at the uh, Sandinista Cultural Workers Association, which was headed by Rosario Murillo. And that was quite revealing because I uh, got a close-up look at uh, what a really Machiavellian person she is. And um, that was hard. And also she had a tremendous jealousy of Ernesto. Ernesto was Minister of Culture and she really wanted to be Minister of Culture. So she would do all kinds of things to undermine him. And again, he was always extremely um, uh, dignified in his response. Um, but I remember he was doing—he was creating all these wonderful poetry workshops throughout the country, and she was poo-pooing them and you know ac- accusing him of making everybody write the way he did. I mean, it was you know one of those things where you you don't want to see those kinds of uh, internal battles because you think that the um, that social change should be above all of that. And of course it isn't because it's made by human beings. And Well,
2: as someone who's, um, who is making media and uh, trying to engage with politics at the same time, I don't know. I'm very interested in in hearing more about uh, some of your work with media in in Nicaragua. Um, I don't know. What were some of the general and and guiding principles you all engaged with to, to uh, think through media and the revolution? How did that work out for you all?
0: Well, I think, you know, we were beginning. It wasn't that we could do everything in two, three years. Um, but I, I think what, you know, the, at the beginning, what people sort of assumed, and even many of the people in our, in my office, was that, uh, okay, so we have a revolution now. So instead of the um, the man and the wim- woman who are the protagonists of the sitcom being, uh, I don't know what you want to say, a housewife and a... And a businessman or whatever, um, he'll be. Let's make him a a a, a militiaman, and her uh, a, a member of a farm cooperative. You know, and and so then we had to think further and think. Well, it's not enough to just change what they do or their titles or you know uh, how they move through life, but change the values that they um, are are living. Uh, so that they can model different values for the people who are listening, watching the TV or listening to the, to the radio or reading the paper. So that was mostly what it was about. A lot of workshops. Um, Shukonda was great at that. I learned a lot from her. Um, You know, and, and we also, our boss above Shukonda was Unis who was probably the only member of the national directorate of the nine member national directorate of the Sandinistas who really was a feminist man. He was um, an unusual man in that he understood feminism. He respected it. He um, was against misogyny. He was interested in race relations. He was, he was a deep thinker, uh, unfortunately died much too young, but uh, he was a great, a great inspiration to us as well.
1: Yeah, talk to us a little bit more about gender in the Sandinista Revolution, because I know that's been the subject of all kinds of literature. Yours, of course, but many others, too. Um, thinking through the the revolution within the revolution, maybe, or, or the attempt to get something like that done. And, of course, you've been involved in women's movements, not only in that country, but in others as well. Um, what was your perspective on justice for women and that piece of the Sandinista Revolution as it was happening? Uh, What did that look like on the ground for you?
0: Well, it was very interesting to begin with because, of course, um, I had learned a lot about socialism and women in my years in Cuba. But the Cuban Party was very anti-feminist. And even the Cuban Women's Organization was anti-feminist. And um, they really followed the sort of old communist international line that uh, the biggest... um, the biggest contradiction is is the class contradiction. And once you've settled that, you know, race and gender and everything else will just sort of automatically follow, which we know isn't true. Um, The other thing was that the Cuban revolution came to power in 1959, which was before the international, 10 years before, um, from the second, what we call now, the second wave of feminism really sort of surged throughout the world. Uh, the Sandinistas came to power in 1979, so 20 years later. And in that interval, not only Vatican II had taken place, which had been a a great sort of mind changer in terms of revolution, but the women's movement internationally had also um, surged. And and so those two things were very interesting to me as a feminist. Uh, So by the time I got to Nicaragua, Well, one of the reasons I was so interested in working at the women's uh, organization is because those first women who were um, who sort of founded the women's organization right after the victory, the Sandinista victory, um, they uh, really did not want this the Cuban model at all. You know, in Cuba, the women's organization was totally subordinate to the party, and the women in and and so of course, you know, when women had ideas that were feminist ideas, the party just put them down uh, or removed those women and put in uh, women who were uh, more malleable. So the women in that first year in Nicaragua were very intent that that not happen there. And they were very close to the Cubans. I mean, the Cubans gave them tremendous support in all areas. Um, and so they were, uh, they. F- They felt that the the Cubans were their sisters and brothers, but they did not want to use that model. And they were determined, but of course they failed because as soon as those strong women began to have ideas that would really um, make a more feminist society, the men just removed them and replaced them with women who didn't have those ideas. So watching that happen in Nicaragua was very... um, was painful and 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 it, it taught us all a lot of lessons. Um, when I got to Nicaragua to live, and I began to um, talk to a lot of the women who had been underground or um, who had you know fought with the Sandinistas, um, they told me that they had used my book *Sandino's Daughters*. That clandestine copies had been handed from person to person during the insurrection, and that just thrilled me. I mean, just the idea that um, my ideas could be interesting to them in that way, you know, um, or useful. Um, so I, I participated in and witnessed those changes, you know, which really, uh, held a lot of promise and then just sort of petered out. Um, and, uh, I think that that's really clear in that sequel book that I did uh, about a dozen years later, Sandina's Daughters Revisited, because by that time the Sandinistas had lost as a party. And these women, who I had interviewed uh, 12 years before, uh, when I interviewed them for the first book, they were uh, members of the party and there, was, there were a lot of things that they weren't going to say, especially to a foreigner. Um, but by the time I did the second book, they were ready to say, (laughs) spill it all. And and it was very interesting because it both illustrated to me how the Sandinistas had politicized these women in a very positive way, had really brought them into social struggle, at the same time, limited them um, in terms of their feminism. So, um, you know, those were my first moments, I think, of being aware of how those two forces can uh, not work well together, you know, and, uh, there are people who throw out one or throw out the other. And I, I've just never felt that way. I think they need each other. I wrote a book in, um, after I got back to the States called, um, what was it called breaking? uh, Um, no, um, the, the subtitle was, uh, the failure of 20th century revolutions to, um, to create a feminist agenda, I think, but I can't remember what the the title of the book, Monthly Review published it. And in it, I I just make very clear that I think that socialism and feminism need each other, you know, and perhaps we could include liberation theology and and other philosophies that are important that have gifts to give, you know, Um, people tend to go for one and just uh, ignore the others. But I think that there are, that there are elements of all of these ways of thinking and acting that are very important to bring together.
2: Yeah, that's a really good word on the importance of uh, socialism and feminism together. And uh, yeah, they need each other. Um, Gathering
0: Rage is the name of that book. Sorry, say it again. Gathering Rage.
2: Oh, okay, great. Also, a good note about liberation theology as well. Maybe we could uh, pivot a bit and talk about that. I guess another uh, another difference between Nicaragua and Cuba to draw out here. What did it mean to discover liberation theology in like the middle of a revolutionary <laughs> moment? You know, I think in the U.S. at least, there's a tendency to treat liberation theology as something that's very academic and um, you know something you do at seminary or whatever. But uh, you encountered it as an outsider in some ways, um, as not a religious person yourself. Um, But speaking in terms of religious tradition, uh, what did liberation theology mean to you, like uh, in the midst of the Nicaraguan moment?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, it just um, kind of startled me, as I say. Um, I was used to a purely materialistic uh, revolutionary philosophy in Cuba. Um, So I think at first I might have been a little paternalistic myself or condescending. I might have seen it as well, you know, all of these people are Catholics. Some, of, many of them have come up through the, the Christian youth movement. So I might've seen it as just a sort of source for uh, for more people to come into the revolution, but of course they, the revolution was the thing, not, not the religion, you know? And, and I think I quickly became disabused of that uh, condescension on my part, simply by witnessing uh, the way those people acted, you know how truly revolutionary they were, and how they clearly saw no contradiction between their belief and uh, social change. And uh, so then I, I sort of moved into that intermediary uh, position where I'm looking at them more for the value that they're bringing. And then I think I I moved even further and realized that they were bringing something themselves, that they were imbuing the revolutionary movement in Nicaragua with ideals and practices and beliefs that were important in and of themselves. As I've mentioned, some of those uh, being against the death penalty, um, uh, or, you know, just uh, not being so exclusionary in terms of, I mean, I know for many years, you could be, I had friends in Cuba, the poets, Sintio um, Vittier uh, and his wife, uh, Fina Garcia Marus, two very great Cuban poets who were uh, profoundly Catholic and you know could never be members of the party or and didn't leave the country, just maintained their faith, but also maintained their faith in the revolution. Cuba gave so much to Latin America in terms of uh, of showing that it was possible uh, to make a revolution uh, close to U.S. uh, soil, but I think that Nicaragua gave back to Cuba. Um, that realization that, uh, that, uh, faith and, and revolution are not exclusionary. And in fact, um, after I, uh, moved to Nicaragua, people like Freybeto, uh, and other people, um, had discussions with the Cubans. Uh, There's a book, a long interview that's fascinating between Fidel and Fray Beto was also a good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, I think the Cubans then realized that they had made a mistake, that they had been too orthodox in their, in their um, uh, just, you know, uh, in their, in in not allowing people of faith to be part of the, the upper echelon of the Cuban women. So that changed in Cuba. And, um, and, you know, I think that, it changed quite quickly institutionally. Um, I think it, it'll take a, a lot longer. It's probably still changing um in terms of just everyday uh attitudes. But but you know, religion is is very um freely practiced in Cuba today, all kinds of religions. So, so I think that was a gift of the liberation theology movement in Latin America as a whole and in Nicaragua in particular, because um the Nicaraguans and Cubans were so close to one another.
1: That's a really neat way to put it. Um, yeah, maybe to borrow, it just makes me think of the uh, the old Marxist term of being a good dialectic maybe between uh, the Cuban revolution and liberation theology and the Nicaraguan revolution, uh, but a really neat thing. Um, it's so cool that you're familiar with uh, Freibeto and, and friends with him as well. Uh, he's also another hero of ours, I think on this podcast. Um, maybe this would be a good time to pivot a little bit more toward the end of our conversation to talk a little bit about Cuba. Uh, you wrote a great book called uh, Exporting Revolution on Cuba that I've been reading just in the last month or so and really enjoying. Um, and uh, that country, of course, as you just mentioned, has changed quite a lot since uh, the revolution in 1959. Um, you know, everything from LGBT rights to uh, religious practitioners, et cetera, all that stuff has changed pretty dramatically. Um, I think there's a lot of things that we want to ask you about Cuba, but maybe we could just start with the religion piece just to kind of stay on the theme here. Uh, As far as you understand it, at least, you know, what is that like? How does religion appear and Christianity maybe in particular appear in Cuban society today? What's its relationship to the the revolutionary process?
0: Well, first of all, I guess I should say that it was never as dire as people outside Cuba made it out to be. Um from the very beginning, it was true that religious believers could not be members of the party. That's true. But um, all the time that I lived in Cuba from 1969 to 1980, um, that entire time religion was practiced freely in Cuba. Um, You know, as long as it was practiced in churches or in synagogues or, you know, it wasn't, um, religion did not have a, a a public presence you know a big public presence um you didn't see huge uh, gatherings of you know religious people but um the churches were all open people could go to them there were quaker meetings there was a um a synagogue right down the street from us that had a little cafe that i remember my kids used to go to uh so you know th- that was always fine um But again, you know, there was this sense that you couldn't be a true revolutionary. You could be a citizen, but you couldn't be a true revolutionary and be a believer. So, okay, that changed and it changed um, with Nicaragua, it changed with liberation theology, it changed with Vatican II, it changed with um, the the bishops at Medellin and so forth. And so the whole process in Latin America then affected Cuba. and I had many friends, not just a but but or Ernesto, but many friends who were interested in that. Uh, I don't know if you uh, uh, are familiar with Gustavo Gutierrez. Um, he was a friend. Uh, uh, the um, there was an Italian uh, priest who was ex- an extremely close friend of mine, uh, um, Giulio Girardi. I don't know if that name means anything to you. He was the Vatican's, um, the head of uh, atheism in the Vatican. (laughs) The Vatican had a, a, I guess, a a department of atheism, I suppose, to study it. Well, he made frequent trips to Nicaragua and he was very influential when I was writing Christians in the Nicaraguan Revolution. So I became kind of interested in all of that. Um, It's true, Cuba has gone through so many changes, you know, and uh, there are so many things that to me are just, you just, I can't forget about Cuba. It's internationalism, it's generosity. Um, The way it took my children in, I I was forced to send my four children to Cuba when I was underground in Mexico and they traveled there alone. The baby was, my youngest daughter was three months old. So, um, you know, the Cuban revolution took charge of them for until I could catch up with them. as it did with thousands and thousands of children from all over the world. I mean, that kind of generosity, that's why I wrote the book that you just mentioned as a, as a way to try to uh, put that on. Because, you know, people here always say, oh, well, they were getting something out of it. And, you know, that wasn't altruistic, that was uh, exploitative and so forth. Well, you know, it may have been to a certain extent. I mean, I don't think people do things that they don't get anything out of. But be that as it may, I have never seen a country with the kind of long-lasting international generosity that that Cuba has. Um, at the same time, there are things that are just getting worse and worse in Cuba. You know, that some of it is due to the blockade, which is certainly a crime and, and and needs to be repealed. And I'm I just keep hoping that Biden will notice it. <laughs> Uh, you know, I've been very pleased with what he's done domestically so far, but not so pleased with what he's done internationally. And certainly, Cuba needs reassessment. But some of it has to be, um, you know, it, it has to be uh, up to the Cubans themselves. And I think that there are some um, older people uh, of Fidel's generation. That until they die, um, we're not going to have marriage equality in Cuba. We're not, gonna, I mean, it's true that um, life for gay and lesbian people in Cuba has gotten much, much better, much better, no question. Uh, and transsexual operations, you know, are, are free under the healthcare system. I mean, there's a lot that they have that we don't have. But the fact that they don't have marriage equality yet in a country that calls itself revolutionary is just, um, inexplicable to me and unpardonable, you know. So I'm critical of of a lot at the same time as I'm tremendously admiring of the Cuban revolution and always will be very grateful to it. Um, I see it as a model still in healthcare and education um, and in many other aspects. Um, The censorship bothers me a lot, the recent censorship. Um, it's undeniable and there's no excuse for it as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, they can say all they want. Well, these people are being paid by the US. Some of them are, some of them aren't, but that doesn't excuse it, you know. So in my mind, um, probably until some of those old times <laughs> um, are no longer in the picture, we're going to have these kinds of problems. And I'm in close touch with many very dear friends in Cuba who, you know, are struggling against this from the inside. And, um, and I, I'm just, um, enduringly admiring of them.
2: Yeah. You know, we really appreciate that, that critical eye, uh, and also, you know, very truthful eye towards Cuba, um, that it's, it's not, uh, It's not this horrible authoritarian place like the U.S. might want you to believe. There's a lot more going on there that uh, we should definitely pay attention to. A lot of what you were just talking about, uh, those themes come out really starkly in your book, Exporting Revolution, which is something that Dean and I have both been reading, I think, pretty closely over the last week or so. Um, And I don't know, would you mind talking a bit about that book, Um, about uh, the exporting of internationalism and its tension with nationalism in Cuba? Um, I'd love just to hear you talk about the, the book just a bit.
0: Well, I I wanted to do that, but I had done two books with uh, Duke University Press. Uh, first, my first book with them was Che on My Mind," which is a kind of feminist uh, rumination on Che Guevara, and then I did a book about Aide Santa Maria, who was a great friend and model and mentor to me, and one of the great human beings I've had the privilege of knowing. And then I, you know, I just. Um, I guess for years I've been sort of wanting to do something about Cuban internationalism. I remember when my uh, youngest daughter, Anna was in fifth grade in Cuba, just before we, we moved to Nicaragua. She, um, her teacher, her fifth grade teacher went to Nicaragua as a teacher. And so two fifth grades at her school had to uh, get together for the year. And that meant that 50 some odd students, you know, instead of 25 in a class. And, so, you know, I, I participated on the ground uh, personally in the ways in which the Cubans made sacrifices. Uh, it wasn't an internationalism that they said, oh, the government's giving, you know, like here we can say, oh, our government send, sends, you know, so many millions of dollars or, or whatever to X country because there's a earthquake or whatever. It, it wasn't like that. It was very personal for all of us. You know, doctors went for two years. Um, there are two stories in that book. I, I, I don't know if you've read them yet. One by uh, a physiologist who went to, um, I can't remember if it was uh, Ethiopia and the other was a doctor, uh, a medical doctor who went to, um, can't remember what country at the moment, but each for two years. And you know, those those, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Cuban doctors and scientists and teachers and artists, poets, uh, you know, people in all walks of life didn't just go to these countries and work in um, in elegant circumstances. Many, many times they went to regions of those countries that the people in those countries wouldn't go to because they were too rough and too hard and And there wasn't enough food and there wasn't proper lodging and so forth. And the Cubans just, you know, they just went and they would bring their own cigarettes and their own food. And they just didn't take anything from in the beginning years I'm talking about. I mean, gradually they've now they're paid for their services, the Cuban government charges. Um, So, you know, things have changed to a certain extent, I think, in a very logical way. I mean, I think they deserve to be paid and they continue to do extraordinary work. but. you know, every single time there's been some kind of a major disaster in the world, a, a earthquake or a flood or, um, the Cubans have been right there, you know, with field hospitals. And I mean, there's such experts at it now too, you know, they have they have so many, many decades of um, experience in what needs to be brought to those places and how you can do the work um, effectively and so forth and so on. and um, you know, they go with people who speak the languages. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary undertaking. And people the way people would talk about this when I would bring it up here in this country, just infuriated me because it wasn't a matter of saying either or, you know, it was just a matter of, of an absolute refusal to admit that a socialist revolution can do anything uh, uh, positive, you know, or or generous. So that was the motivation for writing that book. And it was a wonderful book to write. I went to Cuba to do some of the research. Um, There's a magazine called Medic. I don't know if you're familiar with it, M-E-D-D-I-C, which is in English and in, um, and I think in Spanish and French, I'm not sure. It's a magazine that comes out in Cuba, but it's done by, uh, by Canadians, I believe about medicine in Cuba. So they were very helpful. And um, I met many people who had been on those two year uh, stints. And um, of course, it changes their lives and they change the lives of the people they serve. So it's it's and by this time, after all these years, it's really it's it's a tsunami of of generosity and and uh, so I just felt that it was something that deserved to be written about. the um, The reviews, by the way, have not been very good. <laughs> that most of the reviews have been, "Oh, you know, well, Margaret Randall, you know, she's going to say that it's all this or it's all that." And but whatever, you do what you can do.
2: That's so surprising to me because you you bring a real criticism to to the places that need criticism. I think. Um... Uh, I I feel like that's an unfair an unfair review to give your book. I, I think that you're very upfront about the shortcomings of Cuba. That um that's unfortunate.
0: Yeah, I I think I am too. And I and I just don't see it as an either or proposition at all. You know, I've lived in revolutionary situations in Cuba and in Nicaragua long enough to know that revolutions are made by human beings, and there are good ones, and there are mediocre ones, and there are narrow-minded ones, and you know, there are bigots. Uh, so, you know, I'm very disturbed by this either or thing that that happens in solidarity movements, not in all of them, of course, but it's it's almost as if if you're um, trying to drum up support for a movement or a country, you just are not supposed to say anything bad. I mean, some of my biggest criticisms will come from the left in the United States who's, who accuse me periodically of washing dirty laundry in public and so forth. And as far as I'm concerned, we need to be washing all of that dirty laundry in public. You know, if we if we can't recognize our mistakes or our shortcomings, then we'll just keep on making them.
1: Yeah, I think one strength too of the book is, you know, I can certainly understand and I think I have some sympathy with uh, that reticence to be so publicly critical. Maybe just because I'm so nervous about imperialism and, and all the rest of it. But uh, I think the the thing I take away so much from your book is, um, even in your criticisms, you're also very intentional about saying, but that doesn't mean that, you know, this whole thing is a failure. Like you said, rejecting that, that either or, and um, even you yourself, you've you talked in the book about how uh, some of your own experiences in Cuba, you know, you were living there for a while when you went to Nicaragua, there was this kind of feeling that uh, maybe you'd overstayed your welcome or you weren't so welcome anymore, but you said, I, I get it, you know, whatever, I'll I'll figure it out somewhere else. I think that attention to nuance is such a a gift to the left and and a hard sort of tightrope to walk. But I think that you do it pretty admirably in that book in particular. Um, You know, I would think uh, one of the questions I want to ask about that text is um, you, you make this big appeal, I think, for understanding Cuba's generosity in a way that's really effective. I, I live here in Canada and we just recently, there was a First Nations group that wanted to bring um, Cuban doctors to their reserve to uh, participate in their healthcare system and the federal government said no. And, you know, so there's a, an ongoing conversation in Canada about why is that, et cetera. And I think it's true. Many people don't understand that medical mission. Um, maybe in light of the COVID-19 pandemic and things like that, have you been thinking more about that generosity of Cuba as we go through this this very strange global time uh, what's it been like to to reflect on Cuba's health missions I- at this moment?
0: Well, you know, um, when I was writing the book, or just before I uh, finished the book, I guess Cuba was involved in um, dealing with Ebola in Africa. Uh, which, although it hasn't, it didn't, it never uh, assumed the proportions of COVID in, in terms of numbers. Uh, it was still in in the countries that it was uh, in was just terrible. I mean, it was. And Cuba went fearlessly um, to deal with those with that issue um, in three African countries, the Congo, I'm trying to remember which three, but I write about them in the book and there's an interview in the book with the head of uh, one of those missions who actually got Ebola uh, and ha- had to come back to Cuba to be treated and then insisted when he got better of going back again because he would be uh, immune to that Particular strain of Ebola, so there's a, a there's a generosity of spirit, an individual generosity of spirit as well as the collective uh, that is just in in these people. I mean, they have grown up with it, they have felt it in their own country, and they express it in other countries. Um, so, you know, I I think of this a lot um, internationally. Um, my son lives in Uruguay, and we visit Uruguay, or we haven't been in the last year and a half, but we were going about once a year. And um, there were there was a huge contingent of Cuban um, eye doctors in Uruguay doing the uh, cataract operations that Cuba is so known for, and um, got into. And this was during the um, the broad front in Uruguay. They had a a, a uh, leftist government or a progressive government for about 16 years. And um still uh the uh association of Uruguayan eye specialists were furious with the uh Cubans because um you know they were doing something for free that they were getting paid for. So you have all of those contradictions. Um I haven't um you know I don't know that I'm not, I don't think that Cubans are dealing with COVID, uh, Cuban doctors in other countries. I'm not sure whether they are, they may be um, some of the medical um, missions, but um, uh, I do know that uh, that uh, Cuba itself is making three, um, two or three uh, vaccinations. There's Abdallah and there's Soberan, uh, Soberania, and I can't remember if there's a third one, so, and I know that COVID is, is um, the numbers are rising again in Cuba. So, you know, despite the fact that the Cubans are very good about the kind of social discipline that's required in general, you know, there's always exceptions. Um, they've had a lot of problems too. So I, I've really been involved in something else in other work more recently, and I haven't paid much attention to that. Maybe, maybe not as much as I should, but, um,
2: well, still fascinating to hear about uh, about that and your reflections on it. I think it's great. Um, as we're kind of coming to the end of the hour here, I, I guess I want to ask a really tough question that um, I'm curious to hear how you'd answer. So uh, as a person who has had some very formative political experiences in, in Nicaragua and in Cuba and elsewhere in the world, um, but now you live in the United States, uh, what observations or advice might you give to the the U.S. left? What, what do you think of, um, I don't know, whatever's happening here and what might you tell us?
0: You know, I make it a practice of not giving advice <laughs> to people, um, and certainly I'm not going to give advice to the left here. I mean, we all have our our experiences, and 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 we're formed by our experiences. And you know, in terms of how we see the world, I'm very often because of my age asked, "Well, what advice do you give to the younger people?" And I always say the same thing: I'm going to look to them for advice. I'm not giving any. Uh, so I can't really help you there, but I do think I have a book coming out in September called Thinking About Thinking, and it's a uh, collection of of mostly short essays. Um, and in that book, I I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of um, pushback on several of the ish, of the of the um, essays, because um, for example, and so this is an advice, but it's just sort of an expression of where I am right now in my life in terms of thinking about some of these things. I think we have to be very um, forceful in terms of what we support and who we support. Uh, We can't sit on the fence. Uh, We can't be devil's advocates. We have to be solidly where we are. But at the same time, I really feel that we have to be more tolerant than we have been in the past. and so, for example, in this um, in this book of essays, I have an essay about the statues that are being removed. Uh, and in it, I say basically that, um, you know, it's important to remove these racist statues, but at the same time, I don't feel that it's a good idea to erase that history. You know, the statues should be moved, should, should not be destroyed in my opinion. They should be moved to museums or places where they can be shown with uh, context, you know, of the kind of history that produced them. I have another essay in that book uh, that deals with me too, which is a movement I absolutely support. And at the same time, have seen the tragedies of several cases in which um, I don't feel it's been applied fairly. So I think that listening is really important. And as I've aged, I felt that listening is much more important then, um, you know, making pronouncements about what one believes. I mean, if we really listen to people who are not like ourselves, and try to understand that there are many points of view, and that all and just like we talked earlier, uh, in this hour about, you know, different philosophies that all have something to offer, I think people and their experiences have something to offer. And you know, it's not a matter of going all with so and so or with such and such. It's a matter of really listening to different points of view and incorporating into a more humane policy or a humane program. Um, some of these ideas, um, I think we've seen too much. We've heard too much of labels, you know, socialism, communism, uh, uh, religion, uh, Even democracy. I mean, these are words that have largely lost their meanings because you might say one of them or I might say one of them and we mean something completely different. You know, when we talk about democracy, for example, are we talking about the democracy in the United States where the person who has the most money buys, you know, uh, office? Or are we talking about democracy in Sweden or in Iceland, you know? Uh, So I think that it's important to get beyond the the labels uh, and to really try to understand what we're talking about, what each of us is talking about when we're having a conversation about these issues. And again, especially to listen. So if I have any advice for anybody, um, it would be, and for myself included, it would just be to listen.
1: Well, I think that's good advice. And, uh, you know, um, we'll, we'll have to find out what you're saying in the book in September and we'll, we'll try to find a way to listen and see what we make of it. Um, what else uh, do you have uh, on the go, Margaret? And where can people find your work?
0: Well, I have two books coming out in September. Thinking About Thinking, which is this uh, collection of short essays, uh, is going to be published by a press right here in New Mexico, Casa Urraca, a new press. And it can be pre ordered now from uh, Amazon.com or from your local bookstore, or actually, it can be. Uh, it can be ordered directly from the press in one of a series, uh, several different editions. And the press, you can contact the press at ltd. That's dot com. Um, so that's one, one book. I have a, a new collection of poems coming out from Wings Press. It's called uh, Out of Violence into Poetry. And uh, it will be also um, available in September. Both books are coming out in September. It can also be pre-ordered right now from Amazon.com or through your independent bookstore. Uh, And I'll be launching both of those books nationally at a Zoom event hosted by City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco. And that'll take place on September 7th at 6 p.m. Western West Coast time. So um, it would be wonderful to see people there if they're interested. Um, I have a book coming out in the spring called Artists in My Life. Um, It'll be published by New Village Press in New York. And I've just finished uh, writing a book of short stories, which I haven't placed any place yet, but it's a it's been a big departure for me. I've never written short stories before. So. I'm pretty excited about that and I'm going to start looking for a home for that book.
1: That's great. Well, uh, literary agents that all listen to our podcast, take note, you can be the first one to get Margaret's uh, collection of short stories Uh, in all seriousness, though. It's, it's wonderful to have you, Margaret. Um, Margaret has a a mountain of other books. Uh, I've been reading exporting revolution. I've been reading some of uh, your memoir also published with uh, Duke and, I feel like every time uh, there's something else to pull out of it. So we appreciate you spending some time with us sharing about your life, the uh, opportunities and lives you've been able to intersect with. And uh, we look forward to seeing uh, what's next.
0: Thanks to both of you so much. I really enjoyed this.
1: Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard and you want to support the podcast, you can at patreon.com slash Magnificast. Uh, let's see. What else? Our music is by Amoria Armstrong, and uh, we're really grateful for that. Uh, If you like what you heard from Margaret, you should definitely look into her stuff. Uh, Lots of older books that are really great, but lots of newer stuff, too. Uh, Like we said on the show, we've both been reading Exporting Revolution, and uh, I've been thumbing through her memoir lately, and it's all just really fascinating, incredible stuff to listen to and and read and uh, sit with for a while. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at uh, the Magnificast. You can send us an email at TheMagnificast at gmail.com. And our outro here is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up at church in the morning. Church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. We'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up You keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up where you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind it cold nights. Both might mind if you leave too soon. So come on
0: now, it's still early.